0: Let us go now to Revelation chapter 21 and we will read verses 9 through 27 again. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clearest crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates." And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal." He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written the Lamb's Book of Life. So far the reading of God's Word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it today. As many of you know, I preached through this same text last Sunday. And we are back to it again because after I was finished, I continued to reflect upon this passage. And it seemed to me that there was so much more to consider than what we could consider in that one sermon. And so we have returned to it to look at it from a bit of a different perspective today. Uh, The vision that was shown to John was truly magnificent. I think you would agree with me on that. It paints a picture of the end result of the redemption accomplished by Jesus the Christ. Uh, Indeed, we do even now enjoy the benefits of the redemption accomplished by Christ through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, We, having been graciously and effectually called to faith, We enjoy the forgiveness of sins. We have been adopted by God as sons and daughters, and we have been and are being sanctified daily, being made more and more into the image of Christ. Add to this the assurance we have of God's love, the peace of conscience, the joy of the Holy Spirit, the continual increase of grace, and the promise that God will indeed preserve us to the end. And it is clear that we are rich in Christ Jesus even now. Uh, Truly, we do enjoy the benefits of Christ's finished work of redemption even today, but we should never forget that these are but a foretaste of much better things yet to come. They are just a sampling of the wonderful things that we will experience in the new heavens and in the new earth. This is what Paul spoke of in his letter to the Romans when he said this, for I consider That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us or in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope, in this hope we are saved, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes and what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What is the Apostle Paul saying here in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25? Except this, that he, as he suffered in this world, looked forward to the world to come. That is the thing that he looked forward to the most Indeed, he was comforted by Christ even in his life as he did suffer, but he looked forward to the world that was to come, to the resurrection, uh, to the glorious state into which not only the earth would be brought, but also all of the people of God along with it. Have we benefited from Christ's finished work on the cross, brothers and sisters? Have we tasted The heavenly gift. Have we seen something of the glory of God? Have we experienced the rest that is found in Christ Jesus? The answer to all of those questions is, yes, indeed we have. But is this all? Is this all that we will benefit from in Christ Jesus? Is this all that we will receive? No, for according to the promise of God, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is 2 Peter 3.13. So marvelous will the new heavens and new earth be that this current order of things will hardly be remembered once we receive it, once we enter into it. For the word of the Lord says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So here God says, I am going to create a new heavens and a new earth, and so marvelous will it be that you won't even think of the former way of things. Uh, it will pale in comparison to the glory of what is to come. Um, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced of it that you will not begin to live well as a Christ follower in this world until you come to truly believe what God's word says to us concerning the glory Of the new heavens and earth, and to set your heart and your hope there. I do not believe that you will begin to live well as a Christ follower on earth here until you come to truly believe in what God has said that He is taking everything to this end, the establishment of a new heavens and a new earth. And until you begin to live for that world, the world to come, until you begin to store up your treasures there. You will not live well as a Christ follower on this earth. Far too many Christians are still far too in love with the things of this world. And though they will not say it with their lips and their heart, they do truly believe that this is all that there is and they live for it here. Indeed, we have to set our hope and our love upon God and the world to come. The book of Revelation, I think, helps us greatly in cultivating this heavenly mindset one, it shows us the true character of the world as it is now. You've noticed that in our study of the book of Revelation. Time and time again, the visions of this book do, do give us a glimpse into the true character or true nature of this world. She might look to be so appealing on the surface, but really inwardly in, in character. She is only wickedness and darkness and death and filth. But two, the book also provides us with a glimpse of the true and everlasting glory of the world to come. And here in Revelation chapter 21, we have an instance of that where we are shown something of the glory and the splendor of the world to come. The objective is clear that we would fall less and less in love with this world and more and more in love with God and Christ and what he has offered to us through faith in his name. Uh, Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that our appetites, And affections would change. May the Spirit of God use the Word of God to transform our minds and hearts so that our love for the world and the things of this world is diminished while our love for God and the things of God continues to grow day by day. In the previous sermon on Revelation 21 9 through 27, I really provided an overview. Of the passage, I, I attempted to demonstrate that the vision John saw of the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven with walls and gates and roads and a foundation is, is not to be taken as a literal description of the place where those in Christ will dwell for all eternity, but as symbolic for the people of God who, for all eternity, will enjoy God and Christ dwelling in the midst of them in a most intimate, immediate, and glorious way. I tried to convince you of that last Sunday. Why this symbolic interpretation is difficult for people to accept, I really really do not know. We are in the book of Revelation, are we not? This book communicates truth via symbol from beginning to end. Also, remember that the people of God, that is to say the church, has already been symbolized by physical objects, so that a physical object stands for the church that is all of God's people. Indeed, we encountered symbolism of this kind in the opening vision when Christ was seen walking in the midst of what, brothers and sisters? He was seen walking in the midst of seven golden lampstands. The seven lampstands symbolized churches who were and are filled with the people of God. The meaning was so clear there it was that Christ walks in the midst of his people. Was, was the objective there in the opening vision of the book of Revelation to convince us that Christ walks in the midst of literal lampstands? No, but those lampstands symbolized or stood for churches filled with people who belonged uh, to Christ. That was the meaning of it. Christ is with us. He walks in the midst of us in order to inspect us and to encourage us and to strengthen us and to exhort us in the Christian uh, life. The same is true here in Revelation chapter 21. Something physical stands for the church, namely this city of Jerusalem that John saw coming down out of heaven. The new heavens and new earth will not look like the city that John saw coming down out of heaven, just as churches do not look like lampstands. But lampstands and the new Jerusalem do function as wonderful symbols for the church, the church, like lampstands, are to shine forth as lights in the midst of darkness. And the church, just like the new Jerusalem that John saw coming down from heaven, will in the new heavens and earth be filled with the glory of God and of Christ. We will enjoy His glory. We will reflect it just as we were created and redeemed to do. And so what a beautiful symbol we have here in Revelation chapter 21. That this city is symbolic for the church in glory is clear. For before John was shown the vision, the angel said these words to him, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The bride of Christ is not the city of Jerusalem, but it is the church. The bride of Christ is the total number of the elect whom Christ did redeem By his shed blood. And so the angel says to John, Come, I will show you the bride of Christ. What then did John expect to see except something of of the church? And what was he shown except a city coming down from heaven? The interpretation is clear. This city represents or symbolizes the church that Christ has redeemed by his shed blood. To the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Second Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11.2 This is how Paul viewed his ministry, evidently. He proclaimed the gospel so as to unite men and women to Christ. He proclaimed the gospel, and when one believed, he viewed, viewed uh, it as the start of an engagement or betrothal period. Uh, the job was not done for him. Uh, for the marriage would need to be consummated. Christian ministry, therefore, is about preparing the bride of Christ to meet her husband when he does return. The minister of the gospel labors to present the bride of Christ, that is to say the church, to Christ, pure and mature, when he does return. The same concept is communicated in Colossians one twenty-eight, but without the marriage metaphor, there Paul says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we, we, we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is what Paul labored to do, to, to labor and to minister amongst the church so as to present everyone mature in Christ. Who is he going to present them to on the last day except Christ himself? The word marriage or bride or groom is not mentioned here, but the same concept is true. Uh, Paul was laboring to prepare Christians to meet their husband, that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And in Ephesians 5, Paul spells things out most clearly. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so throughout the New Testament, especially, and even the Old, we do learn this, that Christ is the groom and the church is his bride. Christ gave himself up for her. Christ is now sanctifying her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He now nourishes and cherishes her, and Christ will one day present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy And without blemish. Do you see the metaphor and how it works as it runs throughout the pages of Holy Scripture? We are being prepared by God to dwell with Him and in His presence for all eternity. And this is the event that is here symbolized in Revelation 21 by the sight of the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. In Paul, we are told of a day when the church will be presented to Christ in radiant glory. You just heard a scripture text quoted that speak of this day. In Paul, we are told of a day when the church will be presented to Christ in radiant glory, having been made radiant by Christ. But here in Revelation, it is shown to us, for John saw the bride, the wife of the Lamb, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. That is Revelation 21, 9 through 11. We see it in the book of Revelation. What was told to us bluntly and clearly in previous passages of Scripture, we now see in the book of Revelation. And so, brothers and sisters, do you understand that the thing symbolized here by the holy city Jerusalem that John saw coming out of heaven is you. That is the thing that is symbolized here. It is you who are symbolized here by this holy city Jerusalem. And by you, I do not mean you in the singular, but you in the plural. And by you in the plural, I do not mean you only but all of the elect from Adam onward to the end of time. It is they that Christ has redeemed. He shed his blood for all who did ever or will ever believe upon him. They are the church of the old and new covenant. They are the true Israel of God. They belong to the Jerusalem from above. They are the true temple of God. They are the bride of Christ, given to the Son by the Father from before the creation of the world. See John 17, about this. So friends, if you are in Christ, then you are his bride. If you have turned from your sins and have believed upon him, then you are betrothed to him, united to him by faith and seated with him in the heavenly places. And what is he doing now in you except sanctifying you? He is cleansing you by the washing of water with the word. He is nourishing and cherishing you even now so that he might present you to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that you may be holy and without blemish before him. And that is the event that is here symbolized in Revelation chapter 21. It is the consummation. It is the wedding day where Christ is united to his bride, made glorious for him for all eternity. So you are the bride of Christ. And I wonder, have you thought very much about that fact? That you are the bride of Christ. You are precious to him. He laid down his life for you. He washed you. He is now sanctifying you. And he has gone to prepare a place for you. And you're to remember that in his father's house, there are many rooms. And he will come again and will take you to himself that where he is, you may be also. What a glorious thing that we have in Christ Jesus. How wonderful our redemption is. And my prayer, brothers and sisters, is that this would bring comfort to you. May it never cause you to be puffed up with pride, though. Thinking to yourself, how lovely I must be that God and Christ would would take me as their own. For the love of God shown to us in Christ Jesus is unmerited, we must remember. It is unconditional. In other words, he did not love you and I because he found us to be lovely. Instead, he loved us to make us lovely. He loved us to purify us and to make us a place prepared to receive and to dwell in the midst of his glory and to reflect it forever. His love bestowed upon us was an act of free grace. He determined to love us by His grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result, so that no one may boast. And so remember, brothers and sisters, that God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We love because He first loved us, 1 John four nineteen. God and Christ did not love us because we were by nature lovely. Their love for us was a sheer act of grace. And having loved us, Christ does then make us lovely. He gave himself up for us. He washed us. And he is now sanctifying us so that he might present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish before him. What a glorious thing this is. How rich His love and His mercy and grace. How wonderful His kindness to us. This is not a sermon on marriage. And so I do not want to get too far off on the subject here. But I must say this. Husbands and wives would be wise to think of all that has been said here. And to apply it to the marriage relationship. According to Paul, the marriage relationship exists in part to reflect something of this relationship that exists between Christ and the church. The marriage relationship exists in part to to show forth something of this kind of love, the kind of love that God has shown to us in Christ Jesus. And very much can be said about this, but for now, I want to emphasize that the marriage relationship, especially for the Christian, should be accentuated by unconditional love. And so husbands, do not say in your heart, especially do not say it with your mouth, I will love my wife when she is lovely. Do you hear me? Do not say in your heart, I will love my wife when she is lovely, but instead say, I will lovingly lead my wife so as to be used by God to make her more lovely. That is how we are to approach the marriage relationship. And wife, do not say to yourself, I will love my husband when he is lovely, but instead say, I will lovingly submit to my husband so as to be used by God to make him more lovely." I will lay down my life for his good. This is what you are to say, wife, concerning your husband. And husband, you are to say, I will lay down my life for her good. I will love her. I will love him unconditionally. When Christian husbands and wives live with one another in this way, God and Christ are honored in the marriage relationship. And the man and the woman are ultimately blessed, as are the children if they do exist within the home. And this kind of love is possible if we know the love of God in Christ Jesus. For this is how He has loved us. He did not love us because we were lovely, but He loved us unconditionally. We did not merit His love, but He has been gracious to us. And having loved us unconditionally, He then does sanctify us. He washes us with the water of the Word of God. And so in the marriage relationship, brothers and sisters, we are to live with one another in this way. Beloved, let us love one another For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we might also say, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to to love one another, 1 John 4, 7 through 11. And so you, brothers and sisters, here is the point of it all, are the bride of Christ. He loves you, not because you are by nature lovely, but to make you lovely by his love. He gave himself up for you that he might sanctify you, having cleansed you by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present you, that is the church, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that you might be holy and without blemish. This is what we see portrayed in Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27. You, the church, the bride of Christ in glory, will be finally presented to Christ the groom so that you might dwell together for all eternity. So that he might be with you and you with him and so that you might reflect his glory just as you were created to reflect it. I want you to consider two things about the Bride of Christ in glory today. First of all, I want you to consider how protected you will be in glory. Consider how protected you will be in glory. The high walls of the city symbolize this reality. You will be kept perfectly secure by God forever and ever Notice also that the angels, they stand guard continuously at the twelve gates. No evil thing will pass by them. See verse 12 of our passage today. Indeed, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This place is perfectly secure. That is what is being symbolized here. And in this way, the new heavens and the new earth will be far better than what Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden. No, brothers and sisters, eternity, the new heavens and the new earth, is not a return to the Garden of Eden. Thank God for that. But it is actually laying hold of something far better For the Garden of Eden was a vulnerable place. That place was left vulnerable to attack, for it was a place of testing for Adam and Eve. Adam was to guard it, but he proved unreliable in his task. The serpent slithered in unchecked by him and began to seduce the woman. He began to sow his lies Amongst the first couple. Adam fell and the couple were expelled from that garden paradise. An angel being set then to guard the way to the tree of life. And the new heavens and the new earth. Paradise will be secure though. Having been made secure not by the first Adam but by the second Adam who is Jesus the Christ. And indeed if you are in Christ you are protected even now. Wouldn't you agree with that? That Christ keeps you even now? But you are protected now, not in the same way that you will be protected in the new heavens and new earth. In this present evil age, the people of God do suffer tribulation. You and I have experienced that as we live in this world. In this present evil age, the people of God do suffer tribulation. We are to expect it. This age is marked by battle. The kingdom of light is intruding upon the kingdom of darkness, and darkness does fight back. And remember that in this age, the people of God are being prepared for glory. That is one of the things that God is accomplishing now. He has redeemed His bride, but He is currently washing us. He is preparing us to be presented to Him in radiance. And this often does involve trial and tribulation. For God does strengthen us through trial and tribulation. This is why James says in James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is God doing amongst us now except purifying us as his bride so that we might be presented to him in glory? But he does use trial and tribulation to accomplish that end. In this present evil age... The people of God do experience trial and tribulation, but we must confess this, that we are protected by God spiritually. We are preserved by Him. He has promised to preserve us. We are sealed by God. We have seen this already in the book of Revelation, have we not? We are sealed by God. If we are in Christ, if we have faith in Him, then we have His name and His Father's name written on our foreheads, Revelation 14.1. What does that communicate except this? God knows who belong to him. And he has them marked as his prized and cherished possession. He has sealed us so that we might be kept to the very end. God knows who are his. He sees them and promises to preserve them spiritually in the midst of battle. Uh, this simultaneous vulnerability and security of the church in this present evil age was also symbolized by the measuring of the temple in Revelation chapter 11. We are simultaneously preserved and protected, kept secure by God, and yet we are vulnerable. And the temple of Revelation 11 symbolized that for us. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. Do you hear the similarity between that passage And the one we are now considering in Revelation chapter 21. John is given a measuring rod like a staff, and he was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses who also symbolize the church and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And so the temple of Revelation 11 symbolizes the church as she is now, whereas the city of Revelation 21 symbolizes the church as she will be in glory. And what is the difference? Well, in Revelation chapter 11, a part of the temple is measured off, protected, preserved. It is the measuring of the heavenly altar and throne room of God, where we do worship even now in spirit, that is protected and kept secure. But everything outside of that is left exposed and vulnerable to the trampling of the nations. And is that not what we experience in this world? We are spiritually preserved by God, protected by Him, and yet at the same time we are trampled. We do experience trial and tribulation in this world. That will continue for 42 months or 1,260 days, which symbolizes the entire time between Christ's first and second coming. And so here is a picture of the church in this present evil age, Revelation chapter 11. But when we come to Revelation chapter 21, we see the new heavens and the new earth. And what do we learn there except that the whole thing is temple, It is all secure, it is all pure, it is all city, it is all measured, all will be kept secure, so that death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away when we do enter into glory. What a glorious thought this is. I am moving so quickly as I typically do I hope that you have time to think while I'm speaking. and I hope that you think later on on this Lord's Day about what is communicated here. Have you reflected upon the glory of this place? One of the wonderful features of it is that we will be preserved and protected perfectly. We are now preserved and protected spiritually, but we suffer in the flesh. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no suffering at all anymore. But only perfect security. The new Jerusalem of Revelation chapter 21, beautifully symbolizes that for us. Secondly, consider how radiant you will be. Consider how radiant you will be. John was struck by the radiance of the bride. In verse 10 we read, and he, that is the angel, carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. This is a symbol of the church, of you in the plural. Having the glory of God, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And so the city, which symbolizes the bride of Christ, will be radiant in the new heavens and the new earth. There are a couple of reasons for this. She will be radiant because she will be perfectly holy. No more sin. No more sin in the new heavens and the new earth. What a wonderful thought this is, brothers and sisters, to not struggle with sin anymore. Don't you look forward to that day, to not struggle with sin anymore? Well, clearly all that is said about the new heavens and the new earth, and in particular this city of Jerusalem, it is a place that is pure. Nothing unholy enters into it. It has been purified to the uttermost so that even the gold, which to us looks yellow and beautiful and shiny but not clear, even the gold in the new heavens and the new earth has a transparency to it. It has been so refined that John can hardly describe what he saw. It is gold, but it looks kind of like glass, too. This place is going to be perfectly holy. No sin will enter into it. Indeed, you are holy now. Are you not holy now? You are. You have been made holy by the shed blood of Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. They've been washed away. God sees you as righteous because Christ has clothed you with His Righteousness. This is true of all who have faith in Christ. It is not true of those who do not have faith in Christ. But all who have faith in Christ are rightly called holy. You are saints. You've been made holy by the blood of the Lamb through faith in Him. But you do still sin, don't you? I know that you do. I do. We all still fall short of the glory of God. What does it mean to give glory to God? Does it not mean that we obey Him, that we obey His commandments, that we respond to Him as we should, that we, that we reflect His glory in the right way? We fall short of that even still. When God converts a sinner, our confession says in LBC one, when God converts a sinner... And translates him into the state of grace. That is the state that you are in now if you have faith in Christ Jesus. He frees him from his natural bondage under sin. We've been freed from our bondage to sin. And and by his grace alone enables him to freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Aren't you glad for that? That you've been freed from sin? That you've been regenerated and changed so that now all of a sudden you have this appetite to obey God instead of to disobey him? That is wonderful. Yet so as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he doth not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but doth also will that which is evil. You know this battle, don't you? As do I. That there is this kind of war within us, the spirit warring against the flesh. There is this desire within us to only obey God and to live only for his glory, and yet there is something else that continues to tug at us, it is the flesh, it is the world itself, it is the evil one who tugs at us, calling us away from God, and we experience that battle in this present state of things. This is the state that we are now in. We have been forgiven by God and adopted as His children, but we still struggle with sin. We are being sanctified even now. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sin. Our confession speaks of that state in this way, for in that state the will of man will be made perfectly and immutably, that means unchangeably, free to do good in the state of glory. In that state, that is in the state of glory, you will be free only to obey God and to live for His glory forever and ever. I cannot wait for that day. I cannot wait to enter into that new heavens and new earth where all is preserved by God and kept Pure, I cannot wait to no longer struggle with sin, but only to be able to obey God and to live for His glory as He created me to. The church will be radiant because she will be holy in that day, but she will also be radiant because she will perfectly reflect the glory of God as God intended. So this city is described as being radiant. Where does the light come from, though, brothers and sisters? From the people of God themselves? No, the thing that gives light to this city, the thing that makes it glorious, the thing that makes it radiant, is God and Christ. They dwell in the midst of their people, and the people of God do therefore reflect and refract this glory of God. I want you to notice how everything in this city seems to be highly reflective. Have you noticed that? You almost get the impression that the thing was designed to reflect and reflect, re, re, reflect, and refract light. Everything is adorned with precious jewels or is paved with gold so refined that it is clear like glass. The city is constructed this way so that it might most beautifully reflect and refract the glory of God in the midst of her. The city does not produce its own light. God is its light, but it will shine with radiant beauty as it reflects the glory of God that fills her. This is how God designed us. In the beginning, God made man, male and female, and he made them in the image of God. This was the end for which you were created. You were created for God, made in his image to correspond to him. You were made in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness to know God, to live in obedience to him, and to reflect his glory. And sin messes all of that up. To sin is to fail to give glory to God. To sin is to fail to reflect the glory of God as God intended. But in the new heavens and new earth, sin will be no more. And because of this, we will be able to glorify God as we were designed to, as we walk forever and ever in perfect knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. It's not hard to imagine how this works. Imagine a beautiful diamond ring given to a bride on her wedding day. And then imagine that same diamond ring just caked in mud, right? Is that diamond ring doing what it was designed to do when it is caked in mud? It is not. But when it is made pure, when it is washed, all of a sudden the radiance of that thing begins to shine forth. And so it will be with us in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, We are made in the image of God, yes, but we are caked in mud because of our sin. But Christ has purified us. He is sanctifying us now. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be perfectly pure and holy, as he intended. And we will reflect the glory of God forever and ever. We taste a little bit of this in this world when we walk in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. We taste a little of the joy of the Lord and his peace when we obey his commandments. Haven't you tasted of that? Haven't you tasted how good it is? To live in obedience to Christ and to the commandments of God. It is a wonderful thing to experience the joy of the Lord. And we experience it even now. How good it will be, though, to no longer struggle with sin. How good it will be to only obey our God. To have our wills made perfectly and immutably free to do good alone in the state of glory. This is called the state of glory. For we will be glorified and we will be made suitable In that day to reflect the glory of God as he intended at creation. Consider how radiant you will be, church, in that day. Brothers and sisters, as I reflect upon all of these truths here communicated in Revelation chapter 21, I feel as if I can summarize it all by saying it will be in that day that we enter into rest. That we enter into rest. Rest not as in inactivity. I think heaven will be a busy place. But rest from toil and struggle. Rest from toil and struggle against sin. Rest from toil and struggle against the evil one himself. Rest from toil and struggle against suffering. I look forward to that day, brothers and sisters. I hope that you do too, and I hope and pray that you lay up your treasure there. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful image that is presented to us here in the book of Revelation. We thank you for the redemption accomplished by Christ. We taste of it now. And we say thank you for it even now. Lord, but we long to see the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, I pray that you would make us mindful of the new heavens and the new earth as we walk in this world so that we might walk well. I pray, Lord, that we would fix our minds there and put our hearts and our treasures there. May our love for you be supreme, Lord. And every day, Lord, may we wake up Uh, with this end goal in mind, to see you and enter into your presence. I do pray, Father, that you would sanctify us, drive sin far away from us. Lord, I pray that you would also help us to bear up under suffering, that we would see it for what it is, as something you have permitted, ultimately for your good, uh, for your glory and for our good. Uh, Lord, give us faith to believe this, though we do not totally understand it in this present evil age. Jesus, we do long to see you. We say, come quickly. We long for that wedding day when we, your bride, will be joined to you, the groom, for all eternity. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Make us faithful until then. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.